Welcome to that Tree Lady podcast, episode 9. Your tree type and footprints. Let's talk about following and leading. Sapiri, welcome and thank you so much for being back and joining me on this episode about footprints. It's great to be back. I enjoyed our previous discussions a lot and I'm looking forward to this one. So where have your footprints led you since we recorded last? Because that's about six or seven months. What's been a highlight for you in the past six or seven months? I finished another semester of college. We had our previous recording at the end of my last semester. Um, My footprints have led me into a full-time job. Uh Uh-huh. And... uh, the evolution of a brand new scholarship, which is why I'm working at the Boys and Girls Club, a nonprofit rather than a for-profit company. And I'm enjoying that work a lot. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, that really links up with our theme of leadership um, and following because you are trying to lead young little minds and hearts in a, in a new environment for you. What is that like? What's challenging? What's easy? <laughs> Well, kids are kids, and that's challenging on its own. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it, you do. I was there. <laughs> yeah, but but you were not the, the, the hardest kid to, to lead, to be honest. I think when I had that center in Proclamation Hill and the, the children came from really, really tough circumstances and were distrustful of leadership and authority figures didn't know whether it would just be another area of abuse, right? Those were hard kids to lead because you can't lead when you don't have trust. That's a lot of the demographic of uh, the kids that I work with Mm. now. And so I'm facing a lot of the same challenges you did at around my age. Very interesting. Yes, that's true. I had a couple of years on you, but not a lot of wisdom. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm sure you did. Uh, I, I had your sister in a in a snug and safe carried chair at at five months old when I started that center. So anyway, so I was a little older than you, but so this idea of kids following us, trusting us, us leading them, hopefully following in in the right footsteps, reminds me of a quote by Dr. James Dobson, who was with Focus on the Family for many years. And he warned parents saying the footsteps your kids are most likely to follow in are those you tried the hardest to cover up. (laughs) And I remember being so frightened by that quote because I thought, no, 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 I'm just going to teach my kids what's right and wrong. And then they're going to do what I told them. Now, we, we know it's not as simple as all that. But why do you think... It happens that we are leading in a certain direction as leaders. We have certain ideals. But people follow something else in us. And not always a good thing. Do you think that happens and why do you think so? I think most following doesn't happen consciously, Hmm. but rather unconsciously. And so even if you have, and same story for leading. So if you have an internal compass, which is flawed in all of us, and 
if we don't recognize that, then we're blind to the fact that it's flawed. Um, it doesn't become any less flawed because we think we're perfect. That compass is what's going to decide the direction of the leadership and the following, not the consciously posited ideal. Like you said, Dr. James Dobson's quote is an example of that, which is we're imperfect people, therefore imperfect parents, and therefore set that imperfect example for our children, whether we like it or not. Yeah. And you can project a persona onto yourself, which in your mind is who you'd like to be to your kids. Some perfect super mom or super dad who you want them to follow. And initially, because children are naive about themselves and others, they might buy that and say, dad's my superhero. My mom can do nothing wrong. You know, the mother knows best. Dad is the superhero who saves the world every day at his job um, mm -hmm. mentality. And that's an important step for a kid psychologically in their development to have those absolutely loaded, almost religious conceptions of their mom and dad, because it propels them forward through their childhood. It gives them a, a grounded, safe feeling mm -hmm. and and a narrative landscape for their relationship with their parents that can then be built upon and refined across time. But eventually your kid's going to realize that they're not perfect, that you weren't perfect, and that nobody is perfect. And then that visage comes crumbling down and what takes its place is exactly what Dr. James Dobson said is what takes its place is the example that your previous footsteps set for yeah. your children yeah, and that's, that's why generational curses are so difficult to break no matter how strong the persona is in the beginning it's because kids are only naive for so long and once that disappears well then you're in the real world and your parents are humans so now it's about navigating that i remember my mom falling from her pedestal when I made my first grade teacher. And immediately, Mrs. Petter was all that. And if she said the homework needed to be done in a certain way, that was the way it was to be done. So I think that that period of bliss where we are, their heroes last about seven years max, um, probably less with a lot of people. And um, my, mom's, my mom's squarely back on that pedestal, but with all of the nuance and all of the, the caveats my best friend and a role model in so many ways, but now a little bit more informed. And of course, a lot of those conversations have in the meantime taken place about mistakes made, lessons learned the hard way. And now I'm not following a year, I'm following a human being. And it, it's right. infinitely more valuable. You said something really profound there for a moment. Um, you talked about the the compass. So are you saying... The leader is actually following something. Yes. Of okay, course. What, what are the compass components that you see strong leaders using? Because, I mean, John Maxwell says leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. So if we're saying they're following as they're leading their followers, 
then it also means they are being influenced as they are influencing their followers. So what do you think are those influences? What are What's the compass? The compass is some sort of story at the most oh. basic level. It's a story. Um, for Hitler, the story was us versus them. That's a very powerful story. It's one of the most powerful stories. It specifically appeals to people who really thrive on competition. And thriving on competition is not a bad thing, but that drive can be hijacked by that powerful story. If you say, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, let's go get them, you can get almost anyone with a strong competitive spirit on your side if they're uh, motivated enough by the story, which in many cases history has shown they will be. Now, there are other stories. There are better stories, thank goodness. Um, Mm -hmm. Another story is us versus what is evil within ourselves. Ooh, that's a brave and story to tackle because you have to face dragons, right? It's a very brave story to, to tackle. And it, it is, as far as I can tell, the Christian story. Yes. Yes, because so, it's not us versus them. Us versus them was oh. never the story. Hmm. Oh, please continue. This is good. So a great leader, I'd say, is someone who follows an even greater story and willingly, consciously lets themselves be possessed by that story, for lack of a better term. Saying, I will live out this story to the best of my ability and simply lay that fact bare before anyone who wishes to follow my example. And then not only are you solving the problem of of what it, how it is that you should be leading, because the story simply tells you that, and it actually dynamically interacts with your environment so that you can lead in a new way with an old story. But it also sorts through the people who are following you and lets those who are going to best take up the torch when your leadership inevitably comes to an end, they, it lets them rise to the top because the people that you're going to see rising up as leaders underneath you in this, whatever structure you have that you're leading are going to be the people who also consciously embody the story. They're going to realize oh, this person isn't actually what I'm following. We're following an ideal. We're following a star on the horizon. And that's what we're aiming for. And the moment they realize that's what we're aiming for, they also have the potential to become leaders. So you can't just aim at yourself. Then you go around in circles. You essentially chase your own tail. You don't have anything as a human being innate in yourself that's worth going after because you already have that you're already who you are so aiming at that is counterproductive you have to aim at something you don't have yet a quality that you don't possess but that might possess you if you let it but you have to get out of the way 
because Ooh, there, there's always there expectation is, there. There is so much here that I have to I have to pause you because I need to go back. When you said the, I, I want to unpack the first story and I want to okay. think about those implications for our personality types and the tree types because as you were saying this very profound thing that a story of us versus them activates certain people the competitive types i obviously thought about the rose bushes and the palm rose combinations the conquerors the the ones who can be attracted to power and influence and large crowds and popularity and and all of those external wins that you can get from setting yourself up as the hero who will go and go get the others and will annihilate them and will take the land, you know, and take the territory and distribute right. the gold. <laughs> so this this guy is a certain type of leader. That's not a quiet, socially sensitive inclu- includer. This is an excluder. This is a guy who thrives on defining those lines very, very specifically. But I can see that boxwoods can do that too on principle. <laughs> so they can say that not not us and them, but those who believe what I believe. Yes. And those who believe something else. Because yes. my, soul, my beliefs are pretty much black and white. It feels like it's only the pines who would not be as attractive as attracted to this idea and maybe the more the palms probably social palms exactly yes the social so palms are are people people who make decisions with their heart more than with their head may actually not fall for for the us and them philosophy it's very easy to fall for i'd say conquering the land taking the territory and distributing the gold among the people is a very, very, very important part of leadership and shouldn't be set aside just because some very, very powerful, power-hungry people in the past have used exactly that philosophy and narrative to drive some of the most destructive social movements that have ever been seen the face of the earth. It's also important to note that those forces can be turned towards the good. And what you're asking is essentially, let's digest this narrative in terms of the tree types. Roses. Competition, I think, is most attractive to them. Yeah. When you compare them with the other tree types, you're right. The boxwoods have a more idealistic view of us versus them of it's not us versus them it's our beliefs versus their beliefs yes but the but the rose bushes can fall into a very literal us versus them me versus you dichotomy where everything every value judgment that they make in what they're engaged in depends on that dichotomy Mm. and flows from there and it's a powerful dichotomy for them. But what yeah, needs I, to be. And I feel I've seen I've seen Rosebush leaders who even forget about us versus them. And it's just me versus the world. 
So, so their yes. us becomes very, very small. And eventually, they're the only ones who are left. And it's all about what they can get out of it as leaders. Um, we see that in a leader like Robert Mugabe, who absolutely destroyed Zimbabwe. Yes. And he didn't enrich anybody else. It was himself. He, yes. He did benefit some of his cronies just so that they could keep him in power, but it was never about really taking care of anybody except number one. And Stalin so those examples we do thing. see. Um, but isn't it interesting that that almost always goes with some kind of a psychiatric thing, so, some kind of a mental disorder, some kind of a real social dysfunction in in the leader? Because I think at at the very core, a good leader is a relational being. But when people you lose that relational goal at the heart of their compass, then all sorts of things go very off, not just in how they lead, but in themselves and in their own mind and their own belief system. I want to say something that might be risky to say. I think that in a lot of cases that you pointed out, the antisocial behavior, the sometimes psychiatric or psychological disorders that go along with these dysfunctional leaders might be a result and not a cause of the kind of decisions they made as human beings, which turned them into those leaders. So I, I think that the generally speaking and of course there might be some underlying condition that gets exacerbated yes but generally i think there is some social normality a critical period of decision of how are you going to do this and then whether you become a great leader or a terrible one is the manifestation of that critical choice and that can be turned around of course so it's a simplified version of the story but if we look at people like stalin stalin was certainly not an uneducated individual he certainly wasn't an asocial individual he certainly wasn't a paranoid individual to begin with but mm -hmm. all of those things became extremely prevalent in his personality so much so that he would lock himself up for weeks on end and speak to nobody because of his paranoia and that was only at the end when he had already caused the deaths of tens if not hundreds of millions of people and so there's a evolution that takes place in the individual leader which is a reflection of the choices they make early on. And if those choices aren't addressed or thought about again, then they risk being possessed by something altogether different from the ideal that they should be possessed by. Because if you think about this, a leader follows something and gets other people to follow that thing. If we're, if we're running with that and that that thing is a story, if you hide the story from yourself as a leader, that's probably the most dangerous thing you can do. So I'd say for a rose bush, make sure you know the story you're following. 
Yeah, because the rosebush may not have admitted to themselves that it is about control or it is about power or prominence. And if if that's in their blind spot, like you said right. earlier, it doesn't change the fact that they're still following that. Their unawareness does not help them. That is where they are going. The power and the control may be what drives them. For For the palm tree in their blind spot may be how much they need to be adored and how popular they need to be and how much they need the material rewards, the fun, the freedom, the amazing vacations, the money that that comes with with prominence. Um, the many people who think you're wonderful, all of the accolades, all of the special seats at the table, some of those things can be attractive to to the palm tree. They don't have to participate in the drudgery of an ordinary life. They get an extraordinary life with with possibility, endless possibility, and new people, and chance encounters, and danger, and risk, and all sorts of exciting palm tree benefits. And and for the pine, there's also the comfort and the security of knowing there will be provision for you. You don't need to be concerned. Your family are all beneficiaries of your position, something that's important for pine. So they may hold on to power or leadership for those benefits that grant that safe place and that comfort zone that, that may be important to them. And also the, the very, that very power that enables you to benefit all your people because pine trees also yeah. have a my people value um, they are very, very loyal to their inner circle. And they have a very small definition of inner circle sometimes. But they are definitely not trying to, to benefit anyone else outside of that circle until they discover that pine trees are the social reformers that, that God has given to this world. They are, when they turn that on, and we understand mm-hmm. that they are the ones like Gandhi and Nelson Mandela who can stand up quietly in, in many ways, stubbornly for sure, and very, very clearly audible because they live it um, for the rights and the freedoms of all people and the equal worth mm-hmm. of, of people. So I think they can also be be deluded by that and then then the boxwoods i feel the story that they cover up is often that they hold up a principle so that they don't have to deal with what is infinitely more worthy than principle and that's people and relationships so they can cut people off even though their conscience is gnawing at them saying are you sure this is okay but then they can say well it's the principle you know what's wrong is wrong and what's right is right um, so they hide behind that narrative, I feel, and in the name of that narrative can also endorse horrors. Terrible things, yes. Yeah, because, because then you can ignore all the people as a collective instead of acknowledging what has happened to an individual. Yes, I think culturally speaking, the us versus them of the individual is slowly giving away because we've seen how that can play out um on on in a massive way 
we haven't yet seen the very real repercussions of a boxwood style us versus them clash between two very large groups of people. I don't think we have seen that yet. We got close with the Cold War because that was a war of ideas, but it was a Cold War. No nukes were actually fired as close as we came to that, but it's an intellectual war But what about the religious wars? What about the Inquisition, maybe? What about maybe what's Mm. happening in Ireland? Maybe the Catholic versus Protestant standoff is an example of of boxwood war i don't know yes, i don't know I think- the figures at the head of it but i want to say there it's very much on the letter of the law which is the boxwood tendency absolutely i think those are great examples of situations where that has happened in the past actually um i was more referring to a modern boxwood yes or we we don't we haven't seen that in the last let's say 50 to 150 years mm. and the I, way the I, culture's evolved we're, it's a massive blind spot because i think that's actually a more powerful narrative than simply me versus the world i feel like some of that may be playing out in in american church and politics though because i see boxwoods who are believers who have a strong moral compass i see them excusing behaviors in leaders to uphold just one principle that the leader holds as a core principle that they also hold so they will say no 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 that is all okay because my champion stands for this principle and this principle is the ultimate principle and because this principle is the ultimate principle the smaller ones that are being violated can be completely justified and so there's a there are compartments there are more important principles and there are less important principles and and then they will assign all sorts of consequences socially and spiritually and otherwise to that one principle that's been elevated to an absolute and and that's the inflexible sort of black and white thinking that i see in in me as a boxwood unless i i intentionally say lord help me move beyond the principle to the person what is your heart i don't want to know what's your top principle i want to know what's your heart because and heart is not soft heart is not anything goes that's not what i mean by what's Mm. god's heart because god's heart is not mushy (laughs) his law is a representation of his heart and his principle and his character without a doubt but there's some sense of we see it in the new testament a lot where people want you know want jesus to to kind of pick up his number one principle and whenever he's forced into a corner to pick Mm the law, the principle, he picks loving God and loving people. And and it's that not being loving that Boxwitz are able to justify on principle. <laughs> yes, there was a verse a friend sent me this morning, which was exactly that. Um, and it said, Jesus said, the law can be summed up 
by saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. And the key now, there is what kind of love? Yeah, and who's the neighbor? And who's the neighbor? <laughs> because because when Jesus says that, he's trying to get rid of us and them. Yes, exactly. Uh, and and when we when we list, you know the the whole parable with which he answered the question, "Who's your neighbor?" was interesting because he said, "Well, your your neighbor is the one who can see your need." Instead of saying the neighbor is the one who is worthy of your help, he totally turned that question on its head because he said that the Good Samaritan was a neighbor. And that was not what they were asking. They were asking yes. how far should our love stretch? Who's included and who's excluded? Who's and excluded? Who's our enemy? That, that, that was what they were asking. They weren't asking who's our friend. They were asking who's our enemy. And... Jesus essentially said, look at the person right standing right next to you. That's your friend. That's a very powerful answer yeah. because it says, think about the ways in which you have been thinking about the people standing right next to you as enemies rather than allies. And if they're allies, in what way could they be allies? And a large part of leadership is is trying to get our imperfect minds, which are so caught up in us versus them mentalities on multiple different levels, to try to accept that there is an alternative narrative that might be even more powerful yeah. and more and, effective and for leadership. And let's get into that because that was so beautiful. I, if I can try to to remember exactly how you said it, but you said the, the better story is me against the evil that is in myself. But then the, the goal of that would still be so that I'm really able to, and now I'm merging stories, to take the land and distribute the gold. Yes. But now it's not about me. Now exactly. it's kind of in spite of me. And now it's the the renewed me with much more awareness who can see clearly, who can now help others see clearly and be set free from what holds them captive. So it's a it's a liberation story in a way, but it starts with this very challenging thing that I need to look into my dark side. And I think leaders need to look into their dark side. I mean, I'm, they need I'm, to do it most. It's vital. It's it's yeah. absolutely crucial. And it can't be understated because as a leader, you're not just saying it's me versus if you pick up the powerful good narrative, which is me versus what's evil about myself. It's also me versus what's evil about you, not versus you versus what's evil in you. That's a different narrative. That's the one the rose bushes need to adopt as a matured and refined view of the us versus them dichotomy. It's not me versus the world anymore. It's me versus what's evil about the world. And Solzhenitsyn 
who studied the Soviet Union and who was actually imprisoned for 30 years under Lenin and Stalin, he documented the horrors of the prison camps and came to the conclusion, in spite of what anyone else might think would be, you know, the synopsis of that whole situation. He said the line that divides good and evil runs solidly through the heart of every human being. And what that means is all of us have some good in us. Even the people who did that to him and everyone around him and his family and his friends as an, and his entire country, he said, even for them, the line runs through their heart. It doesn't separate people. It's a line that runs through the heart of everyone. And if you say that the person who, and I would pin Solzhenitsyn as this person, the person who had every reason to make the opposite conclusion when he was most honest with himself was forced to make the conclusion that that line runs through the hearts of people. That's probably true. Yeah. And even if it isn't, which I doubt, it's not useful to act that way. You immediately reduce massive amounts of people to cattle to be slaughtered if you push that to its inevitable conclusion and that's exactly what happened in the soviet union so th there's there are serious dangers to not making that differentiation as a leader and to do that you have to look at your own shadow you have to and, look at your own dark side and that means you're no longer covering up the footsteps because you actually know that you and the person who's potentially going to follow you both have a dark side and it's better to factor that in from the get-go it's better to face that to own up to that to be transparent about that to show up authentically with all of that and say how are we going to work with this because ignoring it is not making it go away it only guarantees that that is what will be tripping you up and i and i i thought of when you said i I need to be brave enough as a leader in a compassionate and, and mature way to confront the evil that is in you. If you are my follower, I thought of parenting because that's what child discipline is. Mm -hmm. It's the parent identifying a root of evil, something that could turn into a horrible characteristic or, or a, a crime eventually, like a, a kid who steals or lies or, or intentionally harms others, it's right. a it's an evil that needs to be dealt with. But isn't it also true that the parent loses the right to do that if they have the same thing, if they also lie, if they also enrich themselves unfairly, if they also are bullies, even towards the, their kids, if they abuse their own authority in the home, then there is no true leadership and there is no true following because followers only follow when their heart can be turned towards that person right or okay so that person's ideas i have one thing to say about that i don't think that it actually dis disqualifies someone as a leader if they're still lying stealing trying exhibiting the behaviors that they specifically discourage in the people who hypothetically follow them. 
um, I think that that it doesn't disqualify them from leadership in the future, but rather completely stults their leadership in the present. And the way out of that is for them to openly admit to the people they're following that that are following them um, in a humble way. Listen, I am not the ideal which I am pointing you towards. Mm. I am imperfect. I struggle with exactly the same things that you're struggling with. And if you think that you will find someone who's further along the path in me, then you're going to fool yourself and fall into exactly the same holes I'm currently falling into now. But that doesn't mean there's no ideal. That doesn't mean there's no star on the horizon that I'm trying to point you towards. The difference is I can see it. And I know that you can't see it yet. And even though I'm not that star (laughs) and that star. And I need to work to have that ideal possess me more completely. Doesn't mean that I can't do this journey with you. So I think where the leader is less developed than the people who are following them humility is extremely important and where humility isn't the leadership will absolutely fall apart so i'd say you're right but there's a caveat and that is there's always something for the leader to run to in that situation it's humility yeah it it reminds me of what what paul said um i think it's in in second well it's in colossians 2 i think I need to go look that up. But he says that they are, you know, they carry that treasure in these unadorned clay pots of their ordinary lives. And they are trying to get people excited about this treasure who is Christ. But they are obviously not representing him as well as they would like to. And and he he says, you know, but we are not trying to make you followers of us. We are trying to make you followers of Christ. So so they are pointing to him as the morning star. They are saying, that's who we're following him, so that's where we're going. This is not where you're coming. That's that's where we're going. And um I guess that's that's true in parenting as well. Making kids followers of Christ is more important than making them followers of us. Yes. Because who knows where we'll go and end up and what mistakes we could make. We're we're not a you know, we're not a steady north. We are <laughs> We are going to go, of course, from time to time. When when I wrote Unnatural Mom, I wrote chapters about each of the four treetop moms. And then at the at the end, I gave them suggestions for confessions. <laughs> that sounded exactly like what you just said, because there would be something maybe for the boxer mom that, that where she would say, listen, I know that I would be very strict on silly things that matter so much to me only to discover at some point that there are silly things that I'm wrong about and it's hard for me to admit you know and for the the rose there would be things about control and and not allowing kids to stand on their own two feet and to become mature and having to confess that there is fear under that there's fear that you will make a big mistake but mm-hmm. it's not an appropriate way to manage that when I when I control your freedom and I it's hold about back. how you frame the mistakes. Mm. It's about what narrative landscape you put the mistakes in. Are you putting the mistakes in a us versus them? 
or are you putting the mistakes in a what is evil about me versus me versus what's good about me? The thing is, I think a rose bush who hasn't faced their own mistakes because they hide them, cover them up, they're afraid their children will have to go through the same discomfort of the crown falling on the floor, of the, you know, the face paint coming off. It always does. Yes, and it it will. So I think a a mature rosebush parent or leader allows people to see them for who they really are and then won't try to protect their followers from having the same thing happen to them. Because nothing, there are few leaders who are more powerful than a broken in rosebush. One who has seen their own dark side, who has mm-hmm. failed, who has fallen, who has lost, who has been left out and not chosen to lead, and yes. whose life has become really, really small for a while, and who had no influence and no prominence. And when they, re- when they rise up from that place and it's not about themselves anymore, it's incredibly influential and powerful incredibly so it reminds me very much of the story of saint george and the dragon and it the part of it that it reminds me of is saint george first goes to face the dragon alone in an us versus them way and mm-hmm. he barely makes it out alive because the dragon's much stronger than he is alone a lot of rose bushes i think run up against the rocks because they have that same mindset and they spend significant portions of their lives picking themselves back up to get uh, picking themselves back up and getting themselves back together from a yeah. conflict in which they went in uh, alone <laughs> you know yeah. screaming a, a battle song thinking that yeah. if they are passionate enough and strong enough in their individuality there's nothing that can stand in their way Oh, well, there's a lot of books and types that can teach you that. Every second self-help book is about you have limitless potential. You can do it if you just <laughs> it. And yeah, so that's how he went in the first time. <laughs> that's how he went in the first time. And the and the thing is, he didn't just face another individual of similar passion because then he might have won, right? Mm-hmm. Saint George didn't face another knight. He faced a dragon, a mythical creature. That only exists in narrative and it shouldn't be forgotten that evil is a narrative force and it's it exists in a dimension that's not you know you and me talking to each other it can possess entire people and conversations and situations and when you're an individual running into the battle essentially blind to what you're actually battling which is the evil in yourself and other people not other people You're going to run up against the evil in yourself and other people and dash yourself against that and then spend however long picking yourself back up together, which is exactly what St. George does. And then he comes back and then he subdues the dragon with a cross and then he can slay it. Uh Aha. Now, what is that subduing the dragon with the cross? What does that look like in practical leadership? Like, what does it look like? It's putting the cross first. St. George literally put the cross in front of himself. He said, I'm not the one defeating you. 
this is what's going to defeat you. I'm just here to put the sword through you. But the sword, but I could never do that without this. And that's the star on the horizon. That's the ideal. And and it's not just that. He could hold it in his hand and he could use it effectively. So it's the mastery of it. It's the hard work that goes into the refinement of what is your vision? What is your ideal? The constant corrections, the admit the admission of the mistakes that you were talking about. All of that goes into the crafting of the ideal that you yourself as a leader follow. Whether you're a rose bush or a palm tree or a boxwood or a pine. Every tree type has to go through that. Now, it looks different for every tree type, but I think St. George and the Dragon is specifically very relatable for for rose bushes. So I'd recommend that they check out that story if they want to know a little bit more about the dangers they face when they are taking on the dragons of the world, because we need them to take on the dragons of the world. St. George does kill the dragon in the end. But what's important is St. George is actually mortally wounded by his last combat with the dragon. The dragon's mortally wounded. St. George's dragon mortally wounded. His horse, which is the ability to move dynamically and adapt to situations and go and chase down the next dragon, is also mortally wounded. And it is only the phoenix, which is very symbolically close to Christ. It's only the spirit of rejuvenation through self-sacrifice that revives St. George and the horse, but not the dragon. Mm. I think that word self-sacrifice is important because the cross is the symbol of Jesus who has already sacrificed himself, has already died to make victory possible. So he overcame. And that sacrifice, yes. Yeah, and has, has given us the ability. So that would mean that every personality type would need to figure out what is the self that needs to be sacrificed? What is that core part? And I I did unpack that quite a bit in in an episode I did by myself about three types at 40 where I talked about maturity. And I think that it's that maturity is that constant force adjustment, that constant realignment that you refer to. It's not picking up the pieces of my confidence, it's no, it's not, not in some Instagram famous self-help motivational speaker sense of and there are good motivational speakers and in Instagram accounts, of course. But I think everyone listening knows exactly what I'm talking about. The yeah. you can do it. Just keep trying. Nothing in you can stop at the dangers of this world if you just pull yourself together enough and, and go at the problem. Exactly the same way that you've been failing at going at the problem for the last 20 years. Yeah, but there is an interesting dynamic because I couldn't walk into that story as just anybody pick up that same cross and have that same victory. That possession of it, the the right to hold it in your hand was earned because those were his actual lived values those were his actual beliefs he you couldn't now take that cross and print off another thousand copies and sell that victory to other people and so you can share the gold but not the cross (laughs) not the 
difficult. <laughs> that is so good. So we can give people the benefit of our own good leadership, but we can't give them the victories that they will win against their, the evil in themselves and the evil in the world. We can show them the pattern of how to do that as long as we are we are holding something authentic in our hand. And you said that that cross is, yes, our our beliefs and but that cross is not Jesus himself or just the name of Jesus. It's not as simple as that. It is a a congruent, true story that can pass the biblical test. It can pass the Christian test. It has to align with God's word and his truth. It can't be our own truth. (laughs) The thing that today everybody has their own truth, but no, you can't have your own truth there. It's going to have to be a truth that has stood the test of time. But yes, it's gonna it has have to be to the truth. And it has to be you. an effective wielding of the truth. And you can't just do that. You can't. I mean, it was Jesus who said you can't pour new wine into an old wineskin. It's going to crack and all of it is going to pour out onto the ground and it will be of no use to anyone there. And that's exactly what happens when, like you pointed out, someone who hasn't looked at what's evil inside of them tries to pick up the cross and face the same dragon that St. George did um, and tries to face the ultimate dragon, which is evil itself with, you know, the little cross that hangs around their neck while they go to the bar every weekend and try to seduce anyone who's there. It's, It's like there's, there has to be a legitimate honest reverence for whatever you're going to use to 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 fight the battles you're fighting and i'd say pick your pick your dragons and pick them wisely because if you really think that you're all that so that you can also go out and just pick up a cross and go to the darkest cave that you can see and and face the biggest dragon you can face Neither you nor your followers are probably going to come out of that alive, or in better in better in a better condition than than they went in. They're going to feel what the flames feel like, and come away with nothing. Wow. And if you picked a smaller dragon, then maybe you would you would learn the lessons that you need to learn for the bigger ones. It's a it's a pro, it's a procedural growth. You don't so, go. Straight from farm boy to dragon slaying knight that saves the village, rescues the fair maiden for himself, and distributes the gold to the people of the city. You don't go from A to B in one massive leap. It's a significant amount of work. It's a significant amount of honesty. And it's a lot of very small dragons in between. Well, this this was so fun. Um, I I think I'm gonna chew on this for for a long time. I love the story component that you introduced. I love the idea that leadership is living a certain story, embracing a certain story, and embodying that story, and telling that story to your followers, and followers believing this story, and then becoming part of the story. And yeah, finding that, your place in the story. By all means, because the story is bigger than you. That's a, that's a great note to end on. The story is bigger than the leader, and it's, the story is bigger than the people. And that's, I think, at the root of effective leadership.
Well, Peter, thank you so much for this time and for those awesome insights. And it's just been a joy, as it always is. And what I see in in you, because you said what happened in the past, however many months, you know, was another another semester of studies, a, a new job, and and fulfilling scholarship duties and so forth. But I see self leadership. I see, you know, if I compare you to your 13 or 14 year old self, you followed in all sorts of different directions when you were 14 there was no story yeah and now there is a story and you know where you fit in the story you know how you want the story to read and you know what the components of heroism are and you know the self sacrifice that it involves to be able to go get anything of worth for anyone else um well, I'm learning become, those things. Yes, you I are. I certainly don't know those things yet, but I'm yeah, trying. Mm. I'd say that I'm not in the place in my life where I'm off battling dragons yet. I'm still in the castle underneath the master learning the tools that I need for that. And yes, that includes occasional quests out into the countryside to herd up some goats or to do some small task that's going to teach me an important lesson. But it's it's all part of the journey. And where I am in my story now is is I'm mastering the word and I'm trying to figure out how it is that I might be able to lift across to the dragons that I do see plaguing the people around me and myself because I fully realize that the line that divides good and evil runs through my heart as well. Uh, I can tell you it's a joy to observe this process and I'm observing it sometimes from behind you because there are many things you've learned I have not yet learned. And sometimes we're next to each other and we're kind of in the same phase of some aspect of learning. So, I think every boy is behind his mother in very important ways, too. <laughs> Maybe even if it's only to pick up whatever she's dropped, but um, <laughs> <laughs> to help carry the grocery bags into the from the garage into the kitchen. Well, uh, Peter, thank you so much. And I, I hope this is going to be a good week for you and a good month. And hopefully we'll do this again soon. Absolutely. I hope for the same thing. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me on always.